Hello everyone, happy 2021, and welcome to episode 6 of Corners of the World, the last for this series. Having completed 3 episodes on Nordic countries and 2 on Asia this series, it only seems appropriate to even this out. Therefore, this week is all about football in China. Well, not all, there's a tiny bit on Hong Kong as well. China is regarded by FIFA as the country where the earliest iteration of a game similar to football began, nearly 5,000 years ago. Fast forward to now, football has a solid grounding in Chinese society. The Chinese Super League attracts the 6th highest average attendances in the world, and the 2nd highest outside of Europe. More recently, it's become renowned in the UK at least, for big money transfers and extremely high wages, something clubs and players alike find difficult to resist. This has attracted high-profile players such as Carlos Tevez, Oscar Arnautovic and Moussa Dembele to travel east. Last winter, there was plenty of speculation Bale may make the move to earn a potential £1 million a week. This, however, may be the last mega-transfer deal involving a Chinese club that gets rumoured for a long time. To discuss the changing state of football and finance in China, I was joined by Jonathan White, a senior editor and sports writer at the South China Morning Post. As well as exploring the recent news of salary caps and name changes, the interview also covered the contrast in fortunes of the men's and women's national teams, where the rivalries in China are, and how Hong Kong went the whole year without a football match. Also, stay tuned for some food-related proposals for new club names in the Chinese Super League. To start off with, I asked Jonathan about the start, and whether football really did originate in China. So, uh, that's certainly FIFA's opinion at the moment. Um, it tallies up with uh, you know, China's opinion. Um, and China and FIFA get on quite well. So they're both in agreement that Suju is the, the first iteration of football as we know it, not quite modern football because, you know, some of it was uh, a little grislier. But uh, that's uh, acknowledged in the National Football Museum in Manchester. President Xi Jinping gave a Suju ball to the Football Museum when he visited, which was, what, 2015? Um, at the same time, Sunji Hai was inducted into the um, National Football British Football Hall of Fame. And when Manchester City's City Football Group got some Chinese investment. So, you know, it all fits in quite nicely with the narrative and then the sort of soft power push of Chinese football. Yeah. And how do you think that soft power has been um, applied in football pretty much since they started uh, rebranding the uh, top flight of Chinese football in around the 90s? Uh, well, going back to the 90s, the, the league went professional in 1994 and became the old uh, GRA League. And that was a move towards professionalisation, nothing more than that. Um, there was investment from bigger companies like Wanda, who would later go on to own Atletico Madrid and build the Wanda Metropolitano Stadium, um, which is still there, you know, only recently built. Uh, they sponsored the league for a little while, as well as sponsoring one of the best teams, uh, which was Dalian Wanda and then Dalian Shudder and then, you know, various iterations at one point, both of those names. There was a corruption scandal and they pulled their money out, not because they were implicated, because they didn't want to be involved. Um, and that was sort of one of the blights of Chinese football. So they tried to professionalise again after a number of match-fixing scandals involving some of the best referees that were in the country at the time. And, you know, the latest professionalisation is, is ongoing. The news actually yesterday out of the Chinese Football Association was that they are definitely going ahead with the move to make all club names in China neutral, which means that a lot of the teams, the vast majority, in fact, so there's only one of them, which is Dalian Ren um, or Dalian Pro, as they're known in English. 
they're the only team who, before this season, had a name that would fit the neutral uh, protocol as the CFA have seen fit to make it, which means that teams have to get rid of any company name in their club official name. So Guangzhou Evergrande, that needs to go. Beijing Guoan, that needs to go. Uh, Tianjin Tida, perhaps the, the, the biggest offender in some ways, that needs to go. Um, so club fans have fought against this. Like There was five or six ultras groups who'd uh, gone against this. Um, and what they wanted to do was to have some kind of uh, leniency for long-standing names. Because Tianjin Tida have been sponsored by Tida since 1998. Tida is the Tianjin Economic Technological Development Area. So they wanted to keep the team name as Tida. They're not being allowed to. The only team who are being allowed to keep the team name is Shanghai Shenhua. And that's because Shenhua is still a company. Um, it means Flower of Shanghai. Um, but the company has not been involved with the football club since 2001. So they're allowed to keep the name simply on account of it not being anything to do with the owners of the football club. So that is the ongoing professionalization. At the same time, they announced even more stringent financial constraints for the teams in the Super League and the two leagues below, China League One and China League Two. What it does is limit foreign players to a salary of €3 million Euros per year. And the figure for domestic players is much lower, even in the top flight. Then teams have a maximum budget. I'll have to check the numbers, but I think it's €600 million, UN, which is not an awful lot of money, but €150 million US dollars. Uh, teams have been spending well over that in the last few seasons, particularly at the top end of the league. So that is um, a factor. But what the CFA wants to see, as well as team names with Chinese characteristics, they want to see teams that are financially sustainable and can run on their own steam. Uh, they would also, as a, as a slight secondary benefit, like to see Chinese players travel overseas because the money in China isn't keeping them there. Like, no longer are they just going to be able to do the old Winston Bogart trick of sitting on a bench and being paid handsomely, but they'd be better off going overseas and trying to look, see if they can uh, get any better and get into a team over there. So, yeah, um, professionalization in, in Chinese football is, um, it's an ongoing process. I think that's fair to say. And every day there's something new, but it's not without its controversies. Like a lot of the interest in Chinese football over the last few years has been because of big names coming into the league, Hoke, Oscar, Alex Teixeira, you know, that kind of player. And if you look in recent seasons, the likes of those big names haven't been coming in. Hoke has just left. Um, and the last two players that Shanghai SIPG, soon to be called something else, signed from overseas were Aaron Moy, uh, from Brighton and Marco Arnautovic from West Ham, um, who are both great players and much better than what's on offer in the Chinese Super League. But they're not Oscar and Hulk who were coming for Asia record fees and have 50-odd, 60-odd caps for Brazil. Yeah, and obviously you mentioned that player um, who managed to get away with just sitting on the bench and making a living. Another one of those players last season being uh, Gareth Bale, who was rumoured for a big money transfer to China. So it sounds like... Um, that's going to be a thing of the past almost immediately now. So do you think that there's almost a crisis in the money leaving the Chinese Super League or do you think that the Chinese Super League will be able to survive this and just grow more organically in the future? Um, it's an interesting question. I think survive, yes, because, you know, policy can be changed to ensure survival and policy often has been changed. Like, if you go back a few years... Companies were encouraged to invest in Chinese football. 
and then because of various political and economic changes in the in the landscape uh, companies were then discouraged from investing and they were encouraged to spend more frugally if you take an example of the chinese investment in football clubs overseas like a lot of that has ended in recent years in comparison to there was a massive glut of it several years ago um you know like wonder group selling their uh, stake in atletico madrid you know they kept the uh, the stadium because that's you know a valuable project overseas but pouring cash into a football club is is deemed as a, a bit wasteful um and then they put money back into chinese football um so now with spending constraints and an attitude from above that you shouldn't be spending a lot of money what it will mean is in the short term more likely than not the players coming into china from overseas are going to be more like the players who are going into the k league or potentially players going into the j league if you discount the likes of vermeilen and iniesta um you know jay bothroyd or um like adam taggett in the k league mm. uh, some of those players are going to be at a more affordable level and still they'll be capable of improving chinese football and improving the players that stay you know that don't go overseas from china but it depends long term what the vision is but the success of the national team hangs over it well the, the comparative lack of success so everything is will is subject to change until um the formula for making the national team even better has been struck upon and that's yet to be the case but i can't see a great change in the sense that you know lots and lots of clubs will, uh, will go out of business what this could mean is that now the corporate names have gone some of those corporate sponsors are going to have an opportunity to pull out where they were committed and probably overextended themselves and didn't want to be committed and then it will sort of uh, reset things a little bit. But I can't see the clubs going anywhere. You know, lower down the level, the expansion was probably too big. And there's a lot of Chinese clubs, you know, they wanted to expand all of the leagues below to the point where the Chinese Super League would go to 18 teams in the next few years from 16 now. So, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to say, but basically it's as stable as it wants to be. And it's a little unusual in that sense, because a lot of things can change when government policy changes. But football is very much on the agenda. So the success of football within the parameters that are set for it is uh, something that is to be prioritised still. How important is the success of club teams and the national team to people in China? Well, Chinese football, in the sense of club football, um, you know, there's people who are very passionate. But if you look at it as... A percentage of people who are interested within China and its very vast population and you know its its vast geography it isn't huge um you know football's popular, but football being popular could mean anything from I occasionally watch the World Cup to I'll get up to watch Arsenal every week to you know I go home and away supporting my local football team like the the interest level is is hard to gauge but there's definitely interest in football the domestic game is sort of concentrated in metropolitan areas um and they tend to be on the east coast of the country still you know it spans a huge huge uh, distance between the furthest team south and the furthest team north you're talking well over a thousand kilometers for uh, clubs to travel on an away game um, which makes it difficult for fans anyway, especially if they're midweek. And then not everything is geared towards the fans. So it's 
it's doubly difficult when, especially this season with the, the COVID bubble, like when fans were allowed back, some of the games were on like a Wednesday afternoon and to get from Beijing to Suzhou on a Wednesday afternoon means you're going to have to leave work on a Tuesday, get an overnight train and then, you know, take the day off to be ready for the game. That That's not good for um, building a fan culture in that sense anyway. So club sides apart, you know, that is, for the people who, who are into it, like the ultras groups, it's everything. You ask most Chinese people about Chinese football, they would tell you it's very bad and just sort of laugh and move on. If they say anything, like it's long been a joke and the league by extension has been uh, a bit of a joke. When it comes to the national team, you know, there are plenty of countries who are proud of uh, their country um, and China's no different. Like China's performance at the Beijing 2008 Olympics across the board where they came second on the medal count for golds and top of the medal tally overall. Like that was huge. Um, you know, it was a great source of national pride. Again, the two Olympics after that Chinese athletes beating the rest of the world. Like they would dearly like the football fans for the football team to be um, up there at least regionally, uh, if not the world. And, you know, the the talk from on high has been that football needs to uh, catch up with where China is when it comes to, you know, various other aspects such as technology, economy, political power, everything else. Um, it hasn't done that. Like the, the naturalisation of players is potentially giving them a bit of a push for the Qatar 22 qualifiers when they resume. But that's a controversial policy as well, because in some cases, these are players who have no Chinese ethnicity at all and no heritage, and they've been naturalised because of residency requirements, like Brazilian players who've met five years. Everything about Chinese football sort of touches on the rest of Chinese society. So the football team being bad, the, na the men's national team, because the women are nowhere near as bad, but the men's national team have improved by one FIFA place this year. I think they're 70th now. Like that is a source of great despair um, and a lot of gallows humour. So everyone would like China to be better within China, um, but so far that has not been the case. And it's hard to see how soon it will be the case because uh, they've had some pretty shocking defeats over the years. Mm, yeah, because this uh, most recent decade, uh, there doesn't seem to have been much progress amongst the Chinese men's national team as they've made Asia Cup quarterfinals but gone no further and they still haven't qualified for a World Cup since 2002. Do you think that they might have a bit more fortune going into the 2020s? Uh, well, there's a reason to think why they will have more fortune in the World Cup being expanded. Um, you know, that would suit China right down to the ground. Like a 48-team World Cup, there needs to be extra teams from somewhere. And given FIFA's uh, focus on what they consider developing confederations, so Asia, Africa, South America, um, you know, the places will go there. So China should benefit from that because they are right now in, in the men's game, they're very much in the second tier of the AFC. Every plan they've had so far hasn't really worked out. If you take into account the fact that they should qualify for a bigger World Cup when that comes around, they should be able to host one whenever they want thereafter that. Um, they'll qualify for that. And then put in place the, the naturalisation and even with the question marks over it, like they've improved um, the squad by getting the likes of Elkerson and Nico Yanaris and Ty Browning 
uh, Alan Carvalho, and there's a there's a raft of other uh, players eligible for naturalisation, including Alex Teixeira, who is said to be next in line. That gives China a, a strong chance, um, certainly to get into the next round of qualifying for the, this World Cup coming up. What happens after that, because it becomes a bit tighter, you know, we'll see. But certainly in the next decade, you'd expect to see China in a World Cup again. Well, that'd be something to see because, as we've said, they haven't been there since 2002. But, um, yeah, as you've alluded to, the women are a lot more successful than the men's team in China, aren't they? Uh, very much so. Um, sadly, it's a little bit case. It's a little bit of case of the, uh, the women are sort of resting on their laurels of recent history as well. Um, it was the 1999 World Cup, I believe, where they came second to the US. Um, they've done well-ish in the Olympics. Um, they they punched above their weight quite early in terms of Chinese football, not in terms of China globally on the sporting world, um, but in terms of Chinese football, they punched well above their weight and they were an Asian powerhouse quite quickly. Um, other Asian nations have potentially taken them over. If you look at the latest uh, top 100 women's footballers for 2020, done by The Guardian and... Uh, the Offside Rule podcast. There are no Chinese players on it. There's only ever been one Chinese player on it, and that's Wang Shuang, and she's been on it twice. Uh, she wasn't on it last year. She wasn't on it this year. She played for Paris Saint-Germain's ladies' side. Good player. Should be playing at that level. You know, didn't look out of a deck playing in the Champions League or the French top flight. But she went back to China, to Wuhan, to her hometown, to get ready for the Olympics, which was meant to be the summer, of course. And that has sort of stunted the growth. Like, that's a particularly Chinese sporting thing to do. Like, the, the best volleyball player, Ju Ting, who, from the women's team, which is the current Olympic champion, maybe current world champion, they dominate. She went back to China from being the best played player in, in, in volleyball and she was playing in Turkey, but she went back to join a Chinese team so she could be close to the China training camps for the Olympics. Like Wang Shuang has not gone well this year because, you know, she was in Wuhan. They got locked down. The Chinese team itself missed Olympic qualifiers that were meant to be in China. They got moved to Australia after being moved around China. Then they were trapped in quarantine. Then after that, uh, they played their games. They had to reschedule again because they were in a hotel in Brisbane, I think, waiting to come out of quarantine. And then they got through the group stage of that to play a qualifier um, that is yet to happen because of what's gone on this year. So even the women's game has is, is stagnated, not only this year, but in general, but this year has been particularly the case. If, if you look at the way the Chinese Women's Super League was, the male equivalent, like the men's clubs have been uh, ordered to have women's teams so, you know, the Chinese Women's Super League is an equivalent. But none of those teams really have the star pulling power that they had a few years ago. Some of that's to do with COVID and people not wanting to come back over. But even if you look at that, that same top 100 list, there used to be three players from the CWSL. This year, there's one. She's gone down in the rankings. Obviously, some of that's visibility, but also, you know, a lot of players who were coming to China are not coming to China anymore. So the women's game's in an interesting predicament as well. But in some ways, you know, when it comes to the national team, for sure, definitely better than the men's team. Yeah, and are there ultras at some of the men's CSL clubs that follow the women's team as well with a similar passion? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Um, the crowds at the women's football are, are very, very small. And also this season, 
I don't think they let crowds into the women's football in the same way that the men's couple of months into the, the bubble, which kept the players inside and the officials and all the staff. If you were willing to take a couple of tests and have the proof that you'd taken them and they were negative, you could go and watch the football. So the Chinese FA Cup is ongoing now and there are fans travelling to that in limited numbers, but still. Um, and I don't think any of that was with the women. So the women's already smaller, playing in smaller grounds more often than not. You know, they, they've had a setback this year on that. Yeah, and for, for a more normal season, sort of what are the key matches on the calendar that the fans always look forward to? Is it the FA Cup final? Are there some big rivalries in China as well? The FA Cup's a weird one. It's sort of a, a very secondary tournament and is a bit moved around. But once you get into the final, it's quite important. The final traditionally is over two legs, played home and away. And it's thrown up some interesting games in recent years. A Shanghai derby in one of them was particularly memorable. And Shanghai Shenhua won it. And, you know, they lured it over their richer neighbours, the, the Johnny-come-latelys of Shanghai football, Shanghai SIPG. As for rivalries, you know, there's, there's quite a few, and some of them are long-standing. Some of them go back to the early days of Chinese football. You know, football was introduced into China in the 1910s, something like that. So there's long-standing pockets of Chinese football. One of the biggest games is the China Derby, which is Shanghai Shenhua against Beijing Guoan. Obviously, there's a Beijing and Shanghai rivalry there that has very little to do with football, but for two of the oldest teams in China, certainly stalwarts of the professional game since 1994, um, and two of the most storied clubs. Like that, That's a huge game. Guangzhou Evergrande have been huge in Chinese football for the last decade. Uh, they didn't win the league this season, which was a shock. Um, and I'm sure their fans and staff will claim there's an asterisk over the title because the format changed for COVID. But they've developed their own rivalries quite quickly because they are sort of the, uh, you know, the rich team that, that wins it all. They're the team with the most naturalised players or the team who hoover up all of the... Uh, the Chinese international players. They're sort of like a more unlikable Bayern Munich uh, yeah. in that regard. Although I'm sure some people would say Bayern Munich are unlikable enough already. Um, but they've got rivalries with the, the teams that they play quite regularly against for trophies. So Beijing Guan, Shanghai SIPG, Guangzhou RNF, which is a local derby, and they are much poorer side in a lot of ways but they tend to have quite good games and then some of the other stuff is just like long-standing regional rivalries or if not long-standing like for example when Beijing Guan played Shijiazhuang like it, it, it's not far away um, so that's that's a big enough game um, certainly on one side when you think of the team who are not from the Chinese capital like it's a massive away day this, a similar story with uh, Hebei China Fortune, like they're essentially in the outskirts of Beijing. So that's something of a derby as well. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of games that don't necessarily mean as much on paper, but the fans have got their own reasons for uh, disliking players because, you know, football fans the world over have quite long memories. So there's, there's tackles that will uh, be remembered from 15, 20 years ago. Um, or results that didn't go their way. So you'll find pockets of rivalry amongst certain ultras and, and fan groups where you wouldn't think there really was one because something has happened a long time ago and it's not been forgotten. Yeah, and another incident that's probably 
quite interesting to look back on now is was one in 2018 where a Denver Bar was playing for Shanghai Shenua and there was um, an incident in a match which uh, sparked a wider conversation about um, potential racism in Chinese football. Has that kind of died down that conversation or has it come back um, in light of recent events? It was it was raised at the time and Shenhua were very quick to speak out in backing Denver Bar. Um, the wider football world, you know, if you looked on social media, there was a lot of support for Denver Bar um, from players who played in China before, such as Freddie Canute and players who knew him and players, you know, from the wider footballing world. Whoever it was against, the club came out immediately and backed their player and said nothing untoward was said um, after Denver Bar's allegations that there were racist remarks. Uh, the Chinese FA, after the news came out, as they want to do, they came out very quickly and dealt with this. What they did was ban the player. I think he was banned for six matches, but he wasn't banned for any kind of racist abuse. He was banned for something along the lines of bringing the game into disrepute or one of these other catch-all terms that the Chinese FA like to use when they're uh, banning players. And that sort of killed the conversation from memory. Like, you know, everyone moved on. There was a ban. You could read into it. It was a ban for whatever you want. And then it stopped. Uh, since then, you know, there hasn't been another allegation of note, certainly not, you know, from, from a game and from a high-profile player such as Denver Bar. So it hasn't really come back. Obviously, this season, like, things have been a little bit preoccupied with COVID and not much has come up. And then all of the news since... Um, it's been about these Chinese FA regulations and the way the game is going in China. So, yeah, it's it's a conversation that probably needs to be had again and should be ongoing, but it is moved off the table in China. Mm. And another place where football is in probably transition is uh, China's neighbours, Hong Kong, uh, where football was a big thing in the 1980s, uh, especially when uh, Bobby Moore was a manager and a couple of uh, English players played there and they were attracting fans of 10,000 and 20,000. Do you think those days are going to return soon? Um, I wouldn't say soon. Football in Hong Kong is currently uh, off the cards because of COVID. Um, we're in a fourth wave here and there is no football at all, amateur or senior, men's or women's. Um, we're actually in a few days coming up on a year since the Hong Kong representative team last played a competitive match and they haven't had a friendly since, they haven't had a training camp since. Um, football is very much on pause in Hong Kong. Um, it's something, you know, we've been discussing how can Hong Kong football return to its quote-unquote glory days of the 70s and 80s. And, you know, pe people have a few ideas, but um, nothing's going to happen until the football is back on and, and regular and, you know, the way it's been so far is it's been stop-start. Um, the Women's League kicked off and had one game and then they're back under, uh, you know, COVID lockdown for, for the league. Um, the Men's League started a little bit earlier, but they'd only played a couple of games in the actual league. It was disrupted last season. The Women's League was cut short. Um, there needs to be a few things put into place about funding and support and sponsorship and Lots of things that have been discussed very publicly, but none of that's going to happen until there's regular football. And that seems a little way off right now. Yes, it feels a long way off until fans are regularly allowed to return in, uh, in into English stadiums as well. 
And I can't imagine that in Hong Kong they've got anything as grand as uh, making every team change their name. So just as a quick uh, thing to finish up on, if you could rename one of the teams in the Chinese Super League, uh, what would you rename it and uh, why? Um, the best name suggestion I've seen was the, the Guangzhou Roast Goose or Roast Geese. It was Roast Gooses online, but um, the Guangzhou Roast Geese for Guangzhou RNF. If they could be named after a local delicacy, I think that's a great way to go because then it gives an opportunity for all the other teams to do the same. You know, Beijing's number one basketball team is called the Beijing Ducks, so why not the football team of the same name? There's, you could have the Shanghai Hairy Crabs. There's, there's lots of way to go. So I, I would like to see everyone adopt a food nickname, but the, uh, the, the Guangzhou RNF team turning into the Guangzhou Roast Geese could kick that off. Yeah, well, I'd be more than happy to follow a league of roast geese and hairy crabs. So that sounds like there could be something that'll be brilliant. But as we all know, we'll probably just end up with a lot of FCs and Uniteds. Yeah, a lot of FCs and Uniteds. Yeah, well, thank you very much for coming on to uh, the podcast, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Quarters of the World. Much to our disappointment, but not to our surprise, Guangzhou RNF have announced that they will be called Guangzhou City for next season not the roast geese that we had all very much hoped for. For those interested in following the Chinese Super League season once it resumes, coverage can be found on Premier Sports in the UK and Ireland, and ESPN in the United States. That's it for this Scandinavia season of Quarters of the World. I'd like to thank all of the guests who have come on this podcast over the last few weeks. You've all been absolutely fantastic and really helped me get this project going. I should be back around the start of next month to investigate football in even more corners of the world.